Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. This week, we're discussing Josh Groban's song, What I Did for Love, which appears on his seventh studio album, Stages, which was released in 2015. Bum, 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 bum. And uh, we're back. We're here. We're, we're here. We're ready to talk about Josh Grubman. Jake Grubman. <laughs> Josiah Groob. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so what's happening? Uh, we were talking about your ferret. Tell me about your ferret. Oh my God. No. So, so, so I was up late because I was so stressed. So yesterday we, Adam and I, um, so we've just moved into this house and we have a patio for the first time in a, well, for the first time. And um, we were building our patio furniture and I turn around and all of a sudden there's this thing on the wall like behind Adam. <laughs> and I freaked out. I, I thought it was a possum. And then I was like, that's not a possum because it's too cute. Then we realized it was a ferret and it was just like there. Like it was so cute. It, but it was like two feet long. Like they're they're not small. No, they're <laughs> like a it's like a snake with fur and legs and a face. Like a weasel, really. But like it's like a like a cat. Sort of, but low to I the mean, ground. I mean, I saw Kindergarten Cop. Wasn't there one in Kindergarten Cop? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. And so, um, you know, not knowing anything about anything, we were like, well, maybe it's like wild. Because, like, I mean, we live on a hill, and so there's like all kinds of things. There's a gopher in the backyard. Yeah, welcome to I'm Northeast battling. LA. Home, yeah, of, so, home of all the wilderness that you yeah, never knew existed I, living on the west side. <laughs> well, and I was like, and I was like, does it have rabies? You know, like like raccoons can have rabies and mm-hmm, stuff. So mm-hmm. we were both kind of like trying to avoid it, but it was very curious and it was just kept like coming up to us. So very like not afraid of people. And, um, you know, so very clearly it was, was at some point someone's pet. And so I was kind of, it went over to our screen door and like put its paws up on the screen. Like it tried, oh, wanted no. to get in. And I was like, oh no, like whose is this? But then it kind of went away. Yeah. It just like it walked away. It went under the fence. And so I've just been thinking about it all day, the rest of the day and then all night. And I was like, I need to try and figure out how to rescue it. Because, you know, again, not knowing anything, didn't realize ferrets aren't really wild. Nope. And uh, so they don't really survive out there. And I was like, oh, my God, if that was like my pet and someone saw it and just let it go. <laughs> I would have died. I mean, it it wasn't like it had been, it didn't seem like it had been homeless for a long time, right? Like it looked like it was in good shape. Yeah. It was like very like, not fat, but it was like, you know, it was good size. It looked healthy. The coat looked clean. And so I was thinking, oh my gosh, like it, it can't have been out for a long time. So I went on next door cause I've signed up for next door now that mm-hmm. I live here. And um, that's a whole other story. Don't, don't, next door, don't engage. Don't engage. I mean, yeah. Although I'm always just, so many lost cats, man. No, yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. Is like I sign on to next door every once in a great while when I need to know something. But in general, it's just it's that thing of like you have a in person you have a really pleasant but vague relationship with your neighbors. Generally speaking, like I say mm-hmm. hi to my neighbors, and I I mm-hmm. know the majority of my neighbors' first names. No, Mm -hmm. not the majority. I know some of my neighbors' first names. But, uh, you know, at the very least, like, we see each other in our front yards and whatever. We'll wave at each other and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But to actually be confronted with their unfettered feelings and thoughts is completely different. You realize how different you are from your neighbors sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
so I, you know, knowing that people on there are constantly posting about lost pets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I decided, I was like, well, let me post. And I was a little nervous because I was like, oh, God, I'm going to get like 400 people being like, you should do this or you shouldn't have done that or blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, didn't get anything. Got one like. But um, in doing my research, I realized that ferrets are actually illegal to own as pets in California. And so if someone's ferret gets out, they actually can't really publicize that they've lost it. Uh, Because if animal control gets involved, they will be taken away and euthanized. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. And and ferrets, so, so just FYI, just if you find a ferret... Find other ways, maybe. <laughs> like there's, there's, there are, there are, there's a um, rescue organization called Angel City Ferret Club in, um, or it's not really a rescue organization. There, they, I found them because they're actually pushing to legalize the ownership of them. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's like you know they don't want wild. The the state in the 30s passed a law because it's to protect like native wildlife, but mm-hmm. like ferrets actually can't. They don't really hunt. They're like so domesticated. Like they're they pose no threat. And I also found that, like, they don't, like, they literally cannot survive on their own in the <laughs> wild. And so I was just all night just, like, stressed about it. I was like, oh, my God. So I left, like, a bowl of cat food and a bowl of water out there. And I was, like, crossing my fingers, being like, please don't. I hope this doesn't attract, like, other wildlife oh, that I don't everything. want. you're going to get no, the muskrats so and the, uh... Nothing came, except this morning I went out to check and it was empty. Everything was empty. But I heard my neighbor rustling on the other side of the fence. He's a young guy. And I just, just I've not, I had not met them because we just moved in. So I just said, hey, you know, and he's like, hey, he goes, hey, has my pet ferret been in your yard? Oh, shit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, thank you. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, he was like, I just saw him out here. He sneaks out the doggy door sometimes. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, I just saw him out here. I was like, oh, so he must have just eaten the food, right? So okay. I took the food away. But um, he's like, yeah, his, he's six months old. His name is Dodge. I was like, oh. But I, you know, so now I feel better. But that all happened this morning. Um, so I'm not worried about that. But then, yeah. Just okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad the ferret, ferret uh, saga ended well. Well, especially because I can hear coyotes out, like literally outside of our, like, yard. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah like at three in the morning, just going crazy. Mm. And I'm just hide your, hide your wives, hide your cats. Yeah. Oh man. I saw a little black cat down there earlier yesterday when we were cleaning and I was like, yeah, be well friend. Be well. We have coyotes just walking down the middle of the street sometimes. So they seem fine. They seem really, they seem really hungry. Those coyotes, they look real skinny. Mm. Anyway. Um, where is my script? Ariana Grande well, positions. What's that? What is that? Oh, uh, well, oh man, Barry, how old are you? Um, Ariana Grande released a new single on Friday oh, okay. called Positions. Okay. Um, I, it was just a discussion point. <laughs> oh, I well, we can't discuss it because I haven't listened to it. Well, I, you know, it's 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 one of those things in true Ariana Grande form. Like you might like the song, you have no idea what she sang because enunciation is not her key. Okay. But I, I enjoyed it. It's her vocal, her <laughs> vocal stylings. Mm-hmm. I actually, I mean, this week was so wild at work that I, I missed like a whole week of life. I just don't, I don't know what happened this week. What did happen this week? I don't know. We, we released, we, 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 you know, this week was the week where we released our Patty LaBelle episode and, um, I got a lot of feedback. Oh, actually. good. Yeah. People loved it. Oh, okay. People really liked that, that song. 
Um, a few people knew that Patty had done it first. A couple, you know, had grown up listening to the Celine version and were floored, you know, that it had been covered or that it was a cover. Um, and so we had a lot of good discussion around that. Had a lot of people reminiscing about their aunties listening to, uh, you know, Patty. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people really liked the the playlist that you put together. So that was a good idea. Cool. Let's continue to do that. This week you can find yeah. Ariana Grande's positions on uh, songs discussed on Redeemer. Yeah, right alongside Josh Groban. Yeah. It's funny. I just realized that like, so we're talking about the Patti LaBelle episode as though that's the last episode we posted, but because of our advanced recording schedule, we're like, I mean, we're, we're fully like four weeks into the future now, <laughs> perhaps more depending on how quickly I can edit shit. But um, we're speaking to those of you from the past. We're from the future and the past. Oh. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. We're, oh no. By the time this goes live, we'll be, we'll be in the distant we'll be past. In the past. <laughs> we might have a different president by the time this, um. Oh my God. Post. Ugh, Actually we won't, we things. won't because the inauguration is not till January, right? A president elect. I don't want to like, I don't want to think too ba- too much about it. I'm trying to like go into, um, that like moment of, uh, mental blankness that you were, that you need to stay calm before like, Is that called, like a fugue state. Oh no. Yeah. Kind of, but no, what's the thing where you kind <laughs> You're of not like, going to commit violence. No, it's like that thing of, um, there's an episode of the Simpsons where Bart is a competitive mini golf player. Uh, and then Lisa okay. teaches him like to like clear his mind to have like a moment of Zen basically before he hits yeah. the ball. Like that's where I'm at with the election. I'm just like, okay, we're so close. We're within striking distance. I mean, that's been, that's been kind of an interesting thing just that since we've moved, all of our representatives have changed. Our city council district has changed. So we've had a lot of reading to do, you know, as far as like the, the candidates in this, you know, in, in this, uh, what like are you? House races. So you'd be like, uh, you're Jimmy Gomez. Jimmy Gomez. So we're 34. So it's Jimmy Gomez and David Kim. Yeah. Wait, um, Wendy, Car- Wendy Carrillo. Carrillo. Yeah. She's running I remember post. you talking about her before. I get so confused. I mean, I, you know, we, we live in a really, uh, a very blue district. So it's. Did you know that our district is, the, this house district is the 10th poorest in the nation? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Apparently like that's, and that's part of well we're also I th- our house district is it our house district um we're in like a weirdly gerrymandered area mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think because like where where i live and then where you live that's fairly connected like mm-hmm. an understandable mass of land mm-hmm. but then there's like a real skinny a skinny corridor that snakes its way into like downtown Mm-hmm. Chinatown all of da- and Boyle all Heights. Of downtown, all of downtown is considered part of this district as well. Yeah, if you look at the district, it's very weird. It, I don't know why it's shaped the way it is and that we're all represented by like the same... Yeah, yeah. The same people. Because even like El Sereno, El Sereno is part of it too. Yeah, bizarre. Which I didn't... Yeah, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no more, anyway. No more po- political talk. I'm entering my moment of zen. <laughs> I, ha- I have no president in my mind. It's... All right. Well, you know, <laughs> while Barry's clearing his mind, obviously you can <laughs> you can find any of the songs, the links, ephemera that we talk about on this uh, podcast on our website, flopredeemer.com. And you can email us with your feedback or, you know, be a normal person and send it to our um, 
social, but you can email us at floppredeemer at gmail.com. I guess the young young people don't use email anymore, right? They just engage via social media. It engage via social so media. Formal. Yeah. Comment, at like, subscribe, do all the things. Double tap, single tap, um, double click. Share. Share, like. Um, uh, what else do people do? Retweet. People go to break. Retweet, subtweet. Yeah, let's go to break. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. So today I'm going to talk about the song What I Did for Love by Josh Groban. And this is a song from his seventh studio album, Stages, which was released in 2015. What I Did for Love is a song from the musical A Chorus Line, and it's been recorded many, 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 many times by many artists, including um, Grace Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck, Dame Shirley Bassey, and me first and the Gimme Gimmies. So everyone's had a piece of this song. Um, do you know this song? I do not know this song. I do not know anything about Josh Groban. Josh Groban occupies no space in my uh, psyche or subconscious. Um, mm-hmm. I know that you were concerned about this episode because it was like, oh, has Josh Gro- Groban, see, I don't even know his name, has Josh Groban <laughs> ever truly flopped? But um, in my eyes, Josh Groban has done nothing but flop. So you can be rest assured that today you are going to redeem him, at least for me. Okay. <laughs> Right, because this wow. even this wow. even this album, like none of his albums have ever really like flopped, right? No, no, certainly like no, they have never really flopped. And I think that's the thing. It's we'll get into like sort of his thing, but yeah. um he's incredibly popular. And but I think that like the transition from like he Josh Groban came up, became came to fame sort of at the in the very early two thousands. And as we've talked about on this podcast with other artists, that transition from sort of like we talk about like water cooler moments and and um, you know they're, they're, like everyone was watching like everyone was watching the same things or seeing the same things at the same time, mm-hmm. and that and as we've gone further into the into the two thousands, that is less and less likely to be true. Because audiences are so fragmented between streaming or, you know, cable or just whatever. Like, the, the, the chances that you have that many millions of eyeballs on the same thing at the same time mm-hmm. has been reduced. And I think that for someone like Josh Groban, he's had to be more creative about being in front of people and also changing, like, kind of evolving from where he was when he started. Yeah. You know? I mean, also, when he emerged in, what, what do you call this, like, pop vocal it's um pop classical or operatic pop because you know like when you have like pop vocalists not pop vocals what is it vocal standard i don't know you know that genre like of standard music, yeah, that yeah, genre yeah. of music where it's like vocal pop like i think that's the grammys category. like a michael buble yeah mm-hmm. I, I feel like there was it's like traditional this pop, orchestrated event to try and make this type of music happen around yeah. that time i mean you know, to look at Josh Groban's, like his fans also like tab on Spotify. It's like a who's who of who cares for me. <laughs> no, you know, no. And you know what? Yeah, no, no, no. Sarah I'm Brightman, almost a hundred. I'm like a hundred percent there with you. Il Devo, Susan Boyle. Yeah. I mean, yeah, also, yeah. I think, you know, what, what I didn't, what I didn't recollect about Josh Groban 
was that he was so young when he debuted that he mm. was like straight mm-hmm. out of high school. Yeah. And I feel like that, that as part of this like pop classical vocal explosion is that you're either that in some way your voice as like classically trained or operatic or just very big at the time we were always looking for the um that unexpected moment of being like oh Mm -hmm. this voice is coming out of this very very young person or this very Mm -hmm. very small person or this very very old fat woman like like Mm -hmm. you know like you see susan boyle come onto stage on whatever britain's got talent you're like oh what's this woman gonna do and you know mm-hmm. she's yeah she's it's the surprise factor. voice of an angel and i feel like that was like i felt like it was foisted upon us because i i you know I, I i don't disagree with you and i think that i, I don't disagree with you like generally speaking and i <clears throat> you know i think if you you know to your point about looking at the uh, you know who the fans like um and this category in general i think you know you better be lactose intolerant because this category is full of cheese. Like total, like, like I think there's so much like Il Devo, which for those of you who don't know, was like this, I don't want to say boy group. It was like they were like a, a boy gr- band of yes, like, of uh, like Fabios. Of like tenors, right? Like they were Yeah, but they like, all look like Fabio or like Bellamy porn models. And they were like uh um, like they were like a Simon Cowell uh, effort. Creation. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, it's this very, um, you know, these pop sort of pop classical. I mean, it's like, it's it originates in pop, but like the output is very classical. And mm-hmm. I think so, let, let's just jump right into it. Yeah, like, go you, for you it. may Tell or me. may not, so, so you may or may not know Josh Groban, or you may think that like he's only performed on PBS concerts or whatever, you know, like Yanni. Um, so here's a quick primer. Um in 1997, so he was he went to this me- this um like performing arts school, um in L.A. Uh, at Cal State L.A., which sort of essentially functioned as a conservatory. And his vocal coach in '97 introduced him to David Foster and his future manager. Um, so that's a huge connection. Obviously, I I feel like it's one of those bullet points like in a Wikipedia or in like a in an interview where you're like, wait. I'm sure millions of people would kill for that. Like, how does that just happen? No further details. It's just a bullet. It's just a oh. bullet. But they, they, they talk about that, right? Like, uh, how the relationship started and, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, David Foster, <clears throat> rather famous, what, like, songwriter, producer... Producer, songwriter, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, goes but, uh, all the way to Earth, Wind, and Fire. What yeah, was I looking at? He did that, uh... What's that Chicago song? Oh, like oh the, Saturday the, like in the a, Park? Like a knight in shining armor... Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. What is that song called? <laughs> I don't know. You know what song I'm talking about, though, right? I do, but I don't know the name of it. Um, I was looking up his discography. So he did like "You're You're the Inspiration." Oh yeah, yeah. You're Chicago. the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. Yeah. Glory yeah. of Love. Mm-hmm. Peter Cetera. All the P- Peter Cetera stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he he's he's a he's a big vocals kind of guy. Yeah, and I feel like he was David Foster. He he was one of the people that was central to trying to make this like operatic pop shit happen well and he was he i mean he's he is a central figure in whitney houston's mm-hmm. life like i mean he he was largely responsible for the hits on the bodyguard soundtrack mm-hmm. um l- very responsible for most of celine dion's like big big some of those big hits towards the end of the 90s mm-hmm. um and into the early 2000s yes like he, he was hugely responsible for this so so david they, he meets david foster and david foster hires him to be a rehearsal singer for a series of high profile events that he was producing including <clears throat> in 99 
the Grammys. So he uses Josh, um, Josh Groban as a vocal stand-in for Andrea Bocelli at the Grammys for the, his duet with Celine Dion, The Prayer. And I, I'm I'm sure you know that song. Everybody knows that song at this point. Yeah. Um, you do. It's on... <laughs> I mean, you know, God. the thing is, I have no patience for any of this stuff. Every, every Josh Groban song I tried to listen to this but week. But like Celine Dion and Andrea Bocelli? Any of that prayer? stuff, you know, okay. I mean, I, cause I watched the, there was like, uh, Josh Groban's dad had taken rehearsal mm. footage of that first rehearsal yeah. with Celine Dion and like, it was in uh-huh. 2020. So watching that, literally anything that has to do with Josh Groban for me, I, I have to like fast forward through because I, it's it feels so so long and so drawn out like his his songs have fully like a minute and 30 of intro before he even starts singing yeah a there's, lot a, the there's a lot of there's a lot of like a celtic flute or a whatever. lot of build a lot of orchestral yeah. build yeah. bring in the strings yeah. bring in the yeah. timpani for some reason a guitar starts strumming and then a swell of synthesizers and then a minute and 30 seconds in it's like josh groban starts singing so that's how i feel about I, everything I, and that's yeah, why no, I, I i have like no distinct recollections of any of his music including this song that we're talking about today even though well, i've been listening he didn't, to it he didn't actually well he didn't actually sing it right like it, i mean he helped with the rehearsal and yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know he was he was the rehearsal because andrea bocelli was feeling under the weather i'm um, going into this perform going into the grammys and so josh groban was the one who performed with celine for the rehearsal and celine was really impressed but more than that Rosie O'Donnell, who was the host at the of the that year of the Grammys, mm-hmm. was so impressed. She booked him to perform on her show, the Rosie O'Donnell show, the next week. And you know what's interesting to put this in context? You know, Josh Groban, Celine Dion, they're singing this song, very classical. the 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 Grammy Awards where Rosie O'Donnell hosted is also the Grammys that J Lo debuted her infamous Versace green dress. Mm. So it's it's like all if you're these, thinking about the intersecting cross cultural yeah. touch points that we're hitting, and if you think about like the cultural landscape, like on the one hand you have like the prayer with Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion, and the other hand you have like J Lo and like whatever else is coming out in '99, yeah. right? Like, and you also have Rosie O'Donnell at the time being like she still had a TV show. She ha- she had a completely different persona. Mm-hmm. You know, I think was she out of the closet at that time? I don't. I don't remember. I just remember that she was like, but her talk show was just so known for her being such a, a sunshiny kush ball mm-hmm. flinging personality and mm-hmm. in, in stark contrast to who she is today. And I think it, I think it had to do with like nine 11 for her that that sent her into like a deep depression and she kind of yeah, emerged yeah. from it, not wanting to do that type of show anymore. But mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. anyway, a very, a very different time. Yeah. It's a very different time. I mean, it's like the kind of range I think, it's just a crazy, crazy time. So, <laughs> I mean, so, it's a thing though, like where in, you know, in music, I feel like they're always searching for what's the next big thing that we're going to kind of champion as the sound mm-hmm. of pop music. Yeah. And I had kind of forgotten that like all of this stuff was ha- like this pop classical stuff was happening. And the thing is, is like, I'm not a huge Josh Groban fan. Like I like the singles, Sometimes Mm -hmm. I like them for like, and he makes a joke about it later. He's like, you may have heard this on like your grandma's like slideshow, like or something like my songs are famous for being used in slideshows or whatever. Like he, he knows he's very charmingly self-aware. Yeah. And I think part of that just comes from being in the public eye, but also being in like sort of this popular, like being popular, but not cool. 
yeah. is a very interesting thing for a pop star or for a celebrity, I think, at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you know, he goes on the Rosie O'Donnell show, and that exposure ends up leading to a guest role on Allie McBeal. Our second um, Allie McBeal reference. Our second Allie McBeal reference, yes. Um, David E. Kelly, the creator of that show, and Mr. Michelle Pfeiffer, um, wrote a role for him in the 2001 season finale where he performed the song You're Still You, which was from his debut self-titled album released that same year, which at the time he had, you know, He'd gotten some exposure and he was with David Foster and he'd like put together this album, but it it was kind of just percolating. We've talked about like the bubbling under. Yeah. Cause he would have been like kind of stuff. 19 or 20 at yeah, this time. Yeah, he was like 19 or 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. About 20. So the character in this season finale was so popular with fans. I guess they got like thousands and thousands of emails about this character. So um, he returned the next season to reprise his role and he performed another song from his album, you know, in character, but another song from the album called To Where You Are. And these two songs are like the first two songs that really kind of put him on the map. I guess Mm -hmm. between, you know, with a very, (laughs) like... I don't know, like like funeral wedding song, <laughs> like the, the, those kind of like, you know what I mean? Like very popular with a very. It's an. I mean, isn't it kind of like an auntie vibe? To it is. It's it is. Aunt. It's like the. It's like it's kind of an auntie vibe. It's it's like a mom vibe. Yeah, because that's the whole thing to me too. Is there's something kind of regressive about trying to make this type of music popular? Because to me, the subtext of like Josh Groban's music or like mm-hmm. Andrea Bocelli or Charlotte Church or. Mm-hmm. Any any of those like pop vocal standard singers is like the I- inherent message is like, don't you remember the good old days when r- there was a, when there was a, like a real vocalist with real music? That's I, like that's always been the subtext to me for any yeah, of this I kind mean, of music. I, I hear that. And I, I think I can I can see that for sure. I don't know that it's always that. But but I. I do know what you mean. And I think, you know, again, like he, he and Sarah Bareilles host hosted the Tony Awards in um, 2018. And they like she made a joke about like, you probably know us from Starbucks <laughs> or an elevator or the lobby of your doctor's office. You know, it's like very like inoffensive. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, you know, inoffensive. Yeah, maybe hearkening back to some other time. Like, we don't have standards, like, in that way. But but I think, like, when you think about Starbucks, like, I think about Josh Groban specifically and this 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 thing of, like, um, pop classical. They don't do this as much. So if you're, if you're a younger person listening to this show, you may not realize that, like, Starbucks used to have these compilations. Mm-hmm. Like, they used to, A, push music, right, for their coffee shop vibe. And they created this, like, coffee shop vibe vibe for lack of a better word yeah like, that that wasn't really a thing before um and it's just kind of like inoffensive yeah music that sort of washes around you it's funny because i feel like in the era of truly independently owned coffee shops the idea of coffee shop music was very different yeah it was more like edgy college radio type of vibes. And then it was, it was smelly cat from friends, (laughs) you know, it was like Phoebe. And then like with the proliferation of Starbucks and like how, you know, broad, how broadly Starbucks had to appeal to everyone in the entire world. There was like this general homogenization of Mm -hmm. what coffee shop music was. It almost became synonymous with like elevator music. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's like sort of like it's sepia toned. It's like Sarah McLachlan or like, which, which is like, I love Sarah McLachlan, but like it, it ends up anyone who gets kind of pushed into that zone automatically gets all of their edges sanded off. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of discount everything they do at that point because 
It's you, you, when you think about people who would who would buy like the Starbucks CD or whatever. <laughs> like you're almost like okay, these are people who don't know music and are just like, oh, I was introduced to this while standing in line at Starbucks. And you're like, oh. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's 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 that sort of thing. Not and to so, say that it's bad music though. No, 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 no. Because no, I mean, no, that's no. where you would buy you would you would randomly buy. Like I remember, I think my mom randomly bought like a Mary J. Blige CD in line at Starbucks. Yeah, it's it was like kind of strange. It, it like it sort of the homogenization of yeah of music. Like to your to your to your point about sort of introducing people to things. Um, but I mean, yeah, they they also had that partnership with iTunes where when you'd go into Starbucks, oh, you, you get the free single. Yeah. Redeem, yeah, you get the free single. On I think. Yeah, and like Adele had done that. So like you think about people, it's like Adele. It's it's you know it's it's these people that you know, Michael Buble. Um, but so these two songs, "You're Still You" and "To Where You Are," they like I've said, they just kind of percolate just under the Billboard Hot 100 for a while. But the popularity of those TV performances really helped. Well, it helped to propel "To Where You Are" to number one on the Hot Adult Contemporary chart. Um, later that year, he sings "The Prayer," which was that Andrea B- Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion duet. He sings that with Charlotte Church. Do you remember her? Yeah. Speaking of like young people singing these like classical thing, it was like that sort of pop opera. Because what she was sort like, of thing was a she was like eleven she was like years 12. old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Voice so of you have an these two angel. young people. <laughs> yeah, people are always just so like blown away by this, right? Um, it, you know, this is around the time of like a JoJo. So like you know, like this whole idea of like young people with big voices doing these things is kind of a thing. But they sang the, the the prayer at the closing ceremony of the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, which was another high-profile event, right? So, and, and I'm sure part of that is because of his connection with David Foster. I mean, look, you, not, not just everybody gets to do that. Yeah. Um, and that was huge. And so, even though the genre is considered classical crossover, his debut album eventually sells 4 million copies. So, it's certified success for him. He does a lot of high-profile performances of classical crossover music um, that that were really popular in the 2000s. Like, and I think like, again, to your, to your thing about a who's who of people you don't care about right off the bat, he performed with Sarah Brightman on her concert tour. And I remember, so Sarah Brightman, is she still married to Andrew Lloyd Webber? Like, cause she was in the Phantom of the Opera. Okay. I don't, and so, no, no, no well, I that's, that's that. I mean, her, her, her claim to fame, I think is, is from that. Like she, like, and the Phantom of the Opera famously is a pop musical about an opera singer Mm. right among other things but that sort of popularized that sort of pop opera thing right because it's like it's not really classical it's not an ancient it's not an old opera it's like a new thing about an old style of music and so she kind of like had a career Mm. of of sort of creating sort of operatic pop stuff and if you remember like Eric, our friend Eric. We Eric. Oh, did Eric you know, really you're like Sarah Brightman? He loved that's Sarah right. Brightman. I, I feel like that's the only reason I know who Sarah Brightman is. By the way, breaking news: Sarah Brightman and Andrew Lloyd Webber divorced in 1990. Holy shit! You're welcome. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, but I mean, okay. So <laughs> I, she was inex. You know, to me, she was inexplicably popular as well. Like there were some like dance remixes of her stuff. I remember, but like. <gasps> Because she did time to say goodbye with Andrea Bocelli, okay. which, which I mean, is another one of those pop classical crossover hits that, among other things, was played on repeat at the Bellagio Water Fountain in Las Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> the the Starbucks of the of Vegas. 
But so, so you know, performed with Sarah Brightman on her concert tour. And again, really popular, became more well-known for that. He also sang the song For Always, which I love, which I, I, I loved at the time. And I forgot about it until I started doing this research again. Like I'd forgotten about it for like 20 years. He did that song. It's a duet with Laura Fabian for the AI soundtrack. And AI was that movie, Steven Spielberg movie with Jude Law as, I think he was an android or like an android gigolo. <laughs> and Haley Joel Osment was an was an android looking f- like who wanted to be like real. Is that what that movie was about? I don't know. I never saw it. I feel like I saw that movie in the theaters. I remember the. I just remember it being heartbreaking, and I didn't want to see it. Yeah, no, I, I remember not not loving that movie. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people did, but okay. this song came from it, and I remember really liking it. Now, Laura Fabian, you may. Some of you may know, she is the best-selling Belgian singer of all time. Um, She sold over 20 million albums. She has sort of a Celine Dion voice, but she had a single called I Will Love Again in the early Uh, 2000s. Yes, which was a huge gay club anthem. (laughs) Even if it takes a Um, lifetime. Yes. To get over you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Laura Fabian. <laughs> Such a, I mean, that's actually a good song. And so, like, their voices blend really well. It's a, it's a beautiful song. I used to... I have, like, these sleep playlists that I used to put together. It would just be, like, songs that I wanted to hear as I was falling asleep. And they were almost always ballads and, like, very big songs. Not, like, super soothing. But it would just kind of send me off. And I would just keep adding to them. So, like, I think the sleep playlist was, like, eight hours long. At one point. <laughs> that's good. That's but this the, was... I remember this hours. being on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beginning so, eight hours of sleep. It's perfect. Well, I would always only listen to the last three. Okay. <laughs> so like, who knows what was at the beginning anymore? You know, but so so he he did that song and, and so that again helps to keep him like you're experiencing him even if you don't like pursue it. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like because of his connections with David Foster and some of these other people, like he's out there in pop culture mm-hmm. in in big things, right? He he performed at a lot of benefits, again, through his connections with David Foster, with David Kelly, David E. Kelly. You know, they're all philanthropists. So yeah. he'd perform at these benefits with the likes of Elton John and Stevie Wonder. And so... I mean, he performed... You want to talk about flops? He performed at Gray Davis's uh, gubernatorial uh, inauguration, yes. which yeah. uh, Gray Davis's governorship of California was the biggest flop. Yeah, I mean, he was recalled. Yeah, when I read that, when I was reading about Josh Groban performing at that uh, inauguration, I was like, "Holy shit!" Like we got rid of Gray Davis. I didn't get rid of Gray Davis. But no. were you here when that happened? I moved here when Arnold. When he, Arnold Schwarzenegger was already our when governor. Schwar- so, no, 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 no. When he was running. Oh, uh, okay. To Because repl- I came in 2001. And so, like, it was around that time when yeah, they I, had... It was so yeah. crazy. I mean, I don't really even remember why it happened. I think I was kind of too young and not involved enough to understand. But our governor of California in, like, the early 2000s was, like, the victim of this, like, fairly nefarious recall attempt. A successful mm-hmm. recall. Successful. Recall. And... Into the vacuum, like a million random people ran for governor. I think Angeline, yeah. Angeline, famous for driving around Hollywood in her pink Corvette. There There's was a porn star. Porn stars ran for governor. Um, didn't Gary Gary Coleman run? I think so. Yeah. Um, and Arnold Schwarzenegger ran, and Arnold Schwarzenegger won the recall. Yeah, largely because I mean, among other things, he he promised to reduce um, 
car registration fees. That's true. And he did, right? And he did. And uh And then he ended up being a very a pretty popular governor. Yeah. I mean, he was fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, look, don't don't come for me if you <laughs> crazy shit cuz I was 19 and I was like I thought it was fine. As far as as far as celebrities turned governors or celebrities yeah. turns pol- turned politicians go, like he was fine. But yeah, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, did we recall Gray Davis over something to do with LADWP? Like it was it had something to do with like our electricity or our water. I don't remember. I think there were like rate hikes and people were in, uh, up in arms people about were that. Upset. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um Josh Groban, returning to Josh Groban and his his philanthropic his, uh, work. Well, just sort of like his the idea that like he's he's been around for a long time, oh, yeah. a very long time, and has been high profile. If like again back to this idea of like popular but maybe not cool. Yeah. Um, and he plays around like that, like we said. But you know, an interesting bit of trivia: the song "To Where You Are" was co-written by Richard Marks and Linda Thompson, and of course, you know Richard Marks. Uh, he'll be he'll be right here waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. not know that song? Okay. No, I do. No, I know. <laughs> okay, it, okay. It, but like all of those songs, like Richard Marks, Peter Cetera, David Foster, like they all form this kind of glob of sound that. Did you not have like boys in your high school like playing like Richard Marks songs on acoustic guitar like around a campfire? No, they were all playing. Um, what's that song? More than words. Uh, well, yeah. Who's extreme. that? Extreme. 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 See, I, I, what, what, what do they I? They sound the same. What do I know Eric Clapton for? Layla and um, Tears in Heaven. Tears in Heaven, and that song too. But that's a sad story. No, but I'm just saying. Story? No, I don't. I see. It, it all just forms one kind his of. His son, his like baby son, fell out of the window. Oh in shit! New York, and he wrote that song, Tears in Heaven. About okay. His son. Well, let's put that song so, on the playlist this week and send Eric Clapton I, it's some pennies. It's such a sad song. It's, such a, it's a beautiful song, but it's so sad. But that's but that's um, like the, the, those are the things that uh, yeah. boys in high school played on. Yeah, guitar. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Well, the the surprising the the real. I mean, in addition to that, the, so Linda Thompson was the co-writer of this song, co-composer, co-writer. Um, Linda Thompson was Elvis's girlfriend for four years in the seventies. Um, she she okay. left him because she wanted a regular quote unquote regular life, which she couldn't have with with Elvis. She then meets a young Olympian named Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner. Okay, yes. um, they get married and have two kids. One of them is Brody Jenner from the Hills. Um, if you remember Brody Jenner, um, they get divorced in the end of the eighties. She then marries David Foster in the nineties. They got divorced in two thousand five. David Foster is now married to Catherine McPhee. Yes. By the way, this which all, is, this crazy. is oh, uh, this all oh, the Catherine McPhee aspect of uh, David. Yeah. I was going down the wormhole. I I started with looking at Josh Groban stuff, and I was like, oh, I need to look at like David Foster because of this whole Catherine mm-hmm. McPhee thing. But um, mm-hmm. we 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 don't need to talk about that. Now. No, no, that no. We don't. Be, yeah, I was like, you could go my, down a whole thing. In my yeah. summation of this whole thing and the Catherine McPhee connection, but you know, I I remember that. In the mid 2000s, before the Hills, I think Brody Jenner and his brother they had like a ridiculous reality show. I think so. And I just remember they got in trouble because they're they needed to like come up with some money, so they staged like an outdoor movie theater in their house. <laughs> and yeah, the I mean the role of their father or their father at the time, their father figure at the time was David Foster. Was David Foster. Yeah. It didn't even compute to me that, that like, cause years later I, th- I was in my recollection thinking that that show was 
Bruce Jenner mm. as their father. But then I was looking at David Foster like last night. And I was like, oh, he was their father at the time. Like he was their father mm-hmm. figure at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were all jerks. And and uh, oh, David yeah. Foster was like a grump, but he's also a jerk. Um, allegedly. No, not even allegedly. He has his own documentary and it's weird. Is he's he a jerk? A, he's, he's like a crazy, like, well, he's egomaniacal. Okay. Which obviously. I mean, obviously he's be. David Foster. Yeah. yeah. But like he's, yeah, he's a, he is a very specific person. Wasn't he, but, is he also like, I mean, not to jump ahead in history, but like, isn't he also, is he, is he Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid's stepfather? <sighs> Potentially. I don't know. They, they, cause they, it's like that whole Malibu thing. Yeah. yeah it's weird. Cause it With makes, Yolanda. it makes them all kind of semi-related. Oh, I don't. I think it was Yolanda. It was Yolanda. I don't, I don't Yolanda know. Yolanda Foster, like she was Yolanda yeah, 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 Hadid, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think. Yeah, so it's like it's it's this whole separate community of like Malibuians. Malibu. <laughs> I mean, it makes like the Kardashians and the Jenners and the Hadids like all like tangentially related through all these yeah. like combinations yeah. of marriages and stuff. Yeah, but Linda it's, Thompson, it's crazy, and Richard but Linda Marks. Thompson. I mean, who I didn't know much about her. I didn't mm. realize that she like was a contributor to this, but like, you know, she co-wrote Whitney's I Have Nothing from The Bodyguard. And mm. she received an award that year, um, you know, because it was like the most played song from a from a like a movie or TV performance. Um, so she with that and she also wrote the lyrics to The Power of the Dream, probably another song that you don't care about. But it is a song that Celine Dion sang at the closing ceremony of the Atlanta Olympics. And David Foster composed it. But it's one of my favorites. <laughs> One of my favorite okay. songs. But it's a big Celine Dion power anthem. Um, so anyway. <laughs> sorry. like <laughs> We've gone down a rabbit hole of like adult contemporary pop. Yeah, let's like, let's re- let's resurface. Resurface. So, <laughs> so follow up to his 2001 debut, self-titled debut, um, Josh Groban releases Closer in 2003. That one. So the first one sold 4 million copies. The second album sells 6.1 million copies. There is a song on it called You Raise Me Up. That goes to number 73 on the Hot 100. So not, not as far as pop goes, it's not super high, but it's not, he's not just on the um, adult contemporary chart. Yeah. Of course, it does stay at the top of the adult contemporary chart that year. Um, And You Raise Me Up is one of those like funeral songs you sing like to honor someone. If you know any Josh Groban songs, you know this song. This is the yeah. only Josh yeah. Groban song that I knew prior to today. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that. So, like, 2003 sells 6.1 million copies. 2006, his his album Awake sells 2.3 million copies. And he was trying to experiment at this time with a more modern sound. He collaborated with um, Imogen Heap, Lady Blacksmith Mombazo. Mm-hmm. Like, he was broadening his horizons. Um, he worked with Guy Sigsworth, who's a producer and songwriter who's worked with, like, Madonna and, and, and all kinds of other people. There was a song on there called You Are Loved, and that was the first, that was the first single. And it was... It was interesting because it was like, it uses his voice, which is that sort of pop operatic baritone, but with like very modern production and like a, you know, modern pop, like instrumentation and arrangement. It wasn't like an overt, like it wasn't classical in that sense. It doesn't start out with like a swell of strings. Yeah. It's, it's a very like Celine Dion of the time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you okay, know, I can so, hear um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I actually liked that song a lot. I, cause I do love his voice. I like that he can. I like as a man, like, cause you know, we've talked about this. I love big singers. I love big voices. And there are very few men who sing the way I like my divas to sing where there's like lots of swelling, big vocals, and then hitting high notes at the end. Right. (laughs) 
holding them, etc. Um, and <laughs> so, so like it's it's kind of like he's like a devo to me. Oh God, not ill devo, but you know, just like a yeah, I got man. it. Masculine form right? of diva. Masculine form of diva. Um, in 2007, following Awake, he releases Noel, and Noel is the Christmas album. It sells six million copies. It is the sixth best-selling Christmas album of all time. For context, Mariah Carey's is seventh. Huh. Celine Dion's is eighth. Number one is Elvis. Number two is Kenny G. So I mean, my dad had that Kenny you're G. A, one. If you're in the market for multiple Christmas albums, you're a specific genre of person, I think. You know, like, I mean, he only I've, has one. I've never, I, I myself have never purchased oh. a Christmas album of any kind. Oh, so I mean, not not even Mariah's. That's a good one. No, I mean, no, I don't have any of it. <laughs> well, I bought it. I mean, I the, I bought it in like '94 when it came out. So like, it's like you know, which is to say that like I I think that like a Kenny G Christmas or a Josh Groban Christmas. Versus like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel like Mariah Carey has like, against all odds, released one of like the classic Christmas albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you would expect it to be more of like a pop classical mm-hmm. artist releasing mm-hmm. Christmas albums for Christmas album people. <laughs> I, just, I just, I'm thinking about the number of Christmas albums that I own. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, you're a, you're a Christmas album person. There's nothing wrong with you. It just I'm not that Christmas album kind of girl, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you have to hear Barbara Streisand's crazy version of Jingle Bells, which I know your man Davy does not like. Yeah, I mean, okay, and Davy Davy is probably also a Christmas album kind of girl. I'm just. I mean, look, I'm I'm like not a religious person. I have no. I'm neither am I. <laughs> Just let no, but you have so. like a background in Christianity. Like true. I, I guess we were, my family was truly, truly only celebrating Christmas for commercial purposes. Well, that's why I buy the albums. That's purely commercial. No, but they're talking about, <laughs> know. you know, they're talking about Christ and stuff in some of these songs. And I don't need to hear that. Yeah, but I, I just, I listen for the, you know, underneath the tree. Just give Kelly me, Clarkson just give me like a Santa, Santa down my chimney, presents under the tree. Girl, that is a whole other. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So anyway, anyway, Christmas album, a huge, huge success. Um, it is the second best-selling classical album of the 2000s. Followed, on, It only follows behind his other album, Closer, which was his second album. So, you know, closing out or heading into the end of that decade, like solidly one of the best-selling uh, artists of that time. Um, his fourth or the next album is Illuminations in, in 2010. It sells one million copies. It was produced by Rick Rubin. Like he's, you know, he's, he still gets to work with like lots of people and, you know, he's still output, but I don't know any of the songs on this album. And, and I mean, comparatively, like his album sales are dwindling. Yeah, are dwindling. Well, now, I mean, music industry but, across the board. And I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, you're starting to see the shift um, to streaming. So there's fewer sales numbers. Um, you know, because by the time All That Echoes, which is an album that came out in 2013, that sold 532,000 copies, right? Yeah. And so way off from like the previous numbers. But again, like we're starting to see streaming and people aren't really yeah. buying albums anymore. I mean, back in the day, like 
to have a number one album on the Billboard 200, you would have to be selling close to a million, if not more than a million copies in a single yeah. week. Yeah, and then like the first get, week it's out. And then you get to the point after like, you know, the music industry is somewhat cannibalized or not cannibalized, but it kind of gets eroded, the music mm-hmm. industry and its sales. And then at some point people have number one albums and I forget who it is that has the claim to fame for like the lowest sales for a number one charting album. But you get to the point where you might have a week where the number one album in the country only sells like 64,000 copies. Yeah. I mean, I think that was Christina's, right? <laughs> Christina's in the UK. Um, you know, it's it, yeah. Bionic. I think it was Christina's Bionic. Um, it was like the lowest, ch- the lowest selling number one that they'd ever had. Because all this time, like his sale. So Josh Groban's sales are dwindling, but he's still having chart success. He's still having chart success numerically. And also, like, you know, he's he's continuing to burnish his image. And I think this is where you start to see the sort of self-aware side of Josh Groban. You know, we talked about him, like, you know, a lot of with, like, the pop classical, there's, like, this, like, faux seriousness. Yeah. Or maybe not even faux seriousness, but, like, because it's real seriousness, but... But you have a certain perception or I have a certain perception of what a person that sings that type of music is like as a person. Yeah. They like wear a suit and like a cashmere scarf all the time. They have gravitas. They they take themselves very yeah. seriously. They take their craft very seriously. Yeah. So yeah. Very, have, very like classical in that sense. Yeah. Very self-important. Yeah. A little bit. And, and so I, I think feel like Josh this... Groban does, he, he, he comes out and like, he eschews that image. Yeah, he's he's trying to like kind of poke holes in that because his his music is very serious. Um, you know, and again, like he, I go back to like where he was making fun of himself at the Tonys, where he's like, "Yeah, you probably had like some of my music on a mixed CD called Emotional." <laughs> like it's just very like you know, it's like it's the stuff that when you're like, we want something heavy, and so you know, he keeps up his profile at this time with a lot of TV perform uh, appearances and even in some movies. Um, he'd actually started acting before he went into music, but he was in Crazy Stupid Love with Steve, Car- with Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling. He was like um, Emma. He plays, was he like, Emma Stone's jerk boyfriend or her? her I think her, her so. First he was like a lawyer. Yeah, he was like this like jerk lawyer. Um, which the, the most surprising thing about that was that Crazy Stupid Love came out in 2011. Like when I see memes of Ryan Gosling looking really good in that movie, mm-hmm. I don't think about that being nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Time. Just, Time is accelerating. Uh, it's a scientific fact. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he was, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. He's been, he, he was, he actually, you know, became, he started going viral for like skits that he'd do on Jimmy Kimmel. Mm-hmm. Again, where he'd sort of like sing in his like crazy, like his pop opera thing, but like normal poppy stuff like you know just like poking fun of himself he was in Muppets Most Wanted and um, in an episode of Parks and Rec so you know even though you know the music industry is shifting and maybe like to some extent this sort of pop classical you know thing he's he's needing to sort of broaden <laughs> broaden his, his horizons a little bit you know he's still staying kind of in the public eye you know by by just being kind of popping up in different places and and showing off his talent for being funny. He's a very funny mm-hmm. guy. And like to you, to your point you made earlier, he's very charming and very self-effacing. And yeah. so I think that all that's when the public starts to see that side of him and you start to get to know him a little bit more as a personality, where, you know, versus like his songs because I don't think and I think that's that's where I'm going with this with this episode and talking about stages in particular is I think at this point very few people know him for the music that he's been releasing. 
they know him for being kind of a funny guy who pops up on things. And so I think that's all part of a strategy. That brings us to Stages. And so Stages is the seventh studio album. Um, it, it's full of Broadway covers. It was released in 2015 and to date has sold 502,000 copies. So as we were talking about before, you know, this is solidly in the era where streaming has taken over. 502,000 copies is still a fair amount, right? But I think... You know, when 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 you look at like sort of what he'd sold before, it's it's hard to know like is this a success or is this fallen off? Yeah. Um, because you would think that a lot of the people, maybe his core audience, would still be buying albums. They may not be streaming because they're old. <laughs> um <laughs> but you know, I mean it's still five hundred and two thousand of those people buying albums is still pretty good. But I think what what makes what categorizes this album for contention on this podcast, Flop Redeemer, is that I think very few people know about it. Mm-hmm. You know, again, like I was saying, like I think Josh has become more popular for his sort of persona and other things rather than some of the music. And so, you know, again, this this contains covers of lots of Broadway songs. Um, it earned a Grammy nomination for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album. So you were looking for like, what was the code name for standards or whatever? It's yeah. traditional pop. So that's sort of like a Michael Buble would fit. At this point, did you say Jackie Ivancho? If if Ivanko Ivanko I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yeah, yeah. So like, kind of in that in line with that. Yeah. So you know, some of the songs on this album, um, there's "Pure Imagination" from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, "What I Did for Love," which we'll talk about from a chorus line. Um, there are two songs from Le Miserable, um, "Bring Him Home" and "Empty Chairs and Empty Tables." Full disclosure, like I know a lot of these songs because different people have sung them to me or around me at karaoke. <laughs> Like, I have not actually seen all of these, like, musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lead single from this, I believe, was um, All I Ask of You, which is, like, the big song from Phantom of the Opera. And he does it as a duet with Kelly Clarkson. Interestingly, well, I'll talk about it in a little bit. Children Will Listen, Not While I'm Around. Those are two. Um, he does a mashup of that. Those are two very famous songs. And he also does a song called Anthem from Chess, among other things. And so it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting album, you know, it it feels very solidly in line with like his his normal output, but some critics said it didn't include real classic like Broadway stuff, so they felt like it suffered a little bit. And when they talk about real classic Broadway stuff, they're talking about like we've talked a lot about standards, and in our episode where we talked about covers, you know, there was a period where you know multiple people did the songs, recorded the same songs multiple times. Mm-hmm. So there's you know if you like the song, one of the most fun things I used to I used to enjoy doing back when streaming was sort of in its infancy and you were kind of pirating songs was to type in a song that I'd heard like say um what is this thing called love or something. Type that in and see all of the different versions of that song that you could co- that you could find and then just download them all and just see which was your favorite. And what a lot of people well I don't know. I mean a lot of people do know, but maybe some people don't, that a lot of those songs, those songs that are popularized by, you know, a Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Nancy Wilson, they come, those standards came from Broadway musicals of the time. And they were popularized as pop songs. And so, you know, I think some people were really expecting more of like a standards album, maybe yeah. from Josh Groban, than like a pure, because a lot of the Broadway covers, they're from like the 60s and on. Mm-hmm. So it's more like, 
quote unquote like modern Broadway, like than maybe some people were expecting. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not like a Broadway musical person. Mm -hmm. It's funny Mm -hmm. because like I did stage crew in high school. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I always enjoyed participating in the act of putting on a show, but Mm -hmm. in general, I don't gravitate towards Broadway musicals in a big way. And then what I find really hard to do is to connect with songs from a Broadway musical that I have not seen because the majority of the time, these songs in context of a show, they take on a resonance because of what's happening to the characters in the show. And so when I look at this track listing, like I've heard of the majority of these musicals, like Chorus Line, Les Mis, The Fantastics, mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz, Carousel, Sunday in the Park with George. Like I've, I've heard of all of those shows, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily know enough about any of those shows to know what's happening in any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I ha- A lot of... So, so uh, the shows that he covered, I mean, or the songs that he covered, they're in the pop consciousness in one way or another. Like they're not obscure songs, but yeah. they're maybe not what, not always what, what pure Broadway fans maybe would like, but also, well, I, I mean, they they are they are. I guess. I mean, is it is it more that like these songs are maybe deep cuts that Josh Groban himself really likes? I don't even versus I don't like, even think they're deep cuts. I think they're popular hits, right? Like, there. I mean, a lot of these are like they're from people who have sort of a pop understanding of Broadway. Okay. Does that make sense? So like, but like, what are like versus like like the criticisms that he wasn't doing the songs that everyone expected? Like, what's an example of a song that they would have expected him to do? They they didn't really talk about, you know, they they didn't really talk about like what they expected him to do. I think it was just the idea that it was putting a pop, like dipping into. I think it was it was a carryover criticism from sort of the idea of pop classical and operatic pop being sort of faux serious. Okay. And so the idea that like as you you know with his with his classical styled voice singing these Broadway songs that it was just faux serious like faux emotional faux, like mining it for depth that like he didn't feel for it or like he's not a Broadway singer. Yeah. I think there's some some of that but like I, at the same time I don't always like when Broadway singers record like a pop album i think sometimes that that doesn't always translate either well so. again like i think that when it comes to songs from broadway there's a certain immediacy and a relevance to an ongoing plot that becomes very important to the songs yeah and listening to this listening to this album there is there's like a lack of immediacy and there's a certain level of polish like it's like the whole thing's been sanded down to a pristine finish yeah that uh, takes me out of what I would normally feel from a what I would think of as like a, a like a like a cast recording, for example. I can see that. I think the thing for me is like as not not growing up with Broadway. I, I think kind of like you, but even less so than you. Like I I wasn't involved with musical theater or anything when I was. I mean, but didn't your par- did your parents ever buy the cassette tapes of like Andrew Lloyd's Web- Andrew Lloyd Webber's greatest no. hits? Oh. No, really? No, oh. no, they. No, um, Jesus Christ. Superstar? I don't think my, oh my God. Can you imagine a bunch of evangelicals watching Jesus Christ superstar? Joseph no. and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? No. Nothing. I remember when that was playing at the drive-in down the street and like, we were like, not going to go see that. I don't know. It, my, it, they, 
you know, my dad, my dad really liked Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh. And so his favorite is Sound of Music. Sound of Music, he had Oklahoma, um, he had South Pacific, like back when they had those two VHS sets, you know, because mm-hmm. they were so long, they spanned two tapes. And we would watch those a lot. He loved West Side Story. And then they kind of, that was it. Like they didn't engage with any, like musical theater of any kind. Okay. At all. And to this day, I don't think they they do either. Like, they have no... I mean, we never saw... Growing up, we never saw musical theater. But for some reason, my mom owned a cassette tape of Les Mis and Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think because... But I think to that point, I mean, those were very popular, right? Like, they were like... They had pop crossover songs and they, they like, bled into the pop consciousness. And I feel like that's the songs that are in here. These are the songs that have, like, carried over where, like, even if you haven't seen the show or don't have context for the show, you may have heard All I Ask of You. Because Barbara Streisand did it with Michael Crawford, like, in the 90s, right? Like, I mean, it her her Broadway album was very popular. And so, if you're a fan of adult contemporary, you probably know this song. And you probably also know the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory song. Yeah. Because different people have done it, right? You know, Well, I mean, those are are probably, those are the only two songs on this whole album that, oh no, I mean, and then Over the Rainbow. I know that, those are like the three songs that I really know. But like, like, You'll Never Walk Alone from Carousel. Like, I know the title of that song, but yeah. I actually don't think I know that song. I, I don't like that song, but it's it's because it's a very dirgy sort of ballad to me. But, like, I know, like, if you're a gay like me who likes Shirley Bassey, mm. <laughs> like, some of these songs you'll know just because she's pounded them out, you know, like, in her way. And, and so what I thought was interesting about the critics... You know, they thought it was mostly fine, maybe a little uninspired is, in their words. But um, they, a lot of them really liked the duet with Kelly Clarkson. That's all I ask of you. Okay. I have feelings Which about that is, one. Yeah, obviously it's like, it's an iconic song, but like, I feel like this version doesn't do hardly anything for me. Nope. Um, I don't think Kelly's voice sounds great. She sounds like she's at the absolute limit of her range mm-hmm. and it sounds painful. Like to me, like yeah, it. Her, she shouldn't be singing that high for that long, <laughs> that loud. I feel like there's like a what's the opposite of sweetness, sourness, bitterness. No, there's there's just something always uncomfortable about that part of her voice that I think yeah, it should be used for a very specific message and yeah, not, it's not like generally punctuate. like a it's not generally like a sweet spot in her voice. It should be an exclamation point and not like an all caps screed. Yeah. And I mean, right? I don't like, think that yeah. I don't think that they sound right together on this song. Yeah, they don't really blend. I think you know they don't blend because I don't think like he does well with sort of a. Um, I guess it is like a classical sort of, not classical, but like a more syrupy voice. Because Kelly Clarkson's not like syrupy. I just find his voice to be like it, I. I don't think his voice sounds good at anywhere. Is that fair? I I think it's fair. I was I was reading about how like they 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 don't categorize him necessarily as a tenor because his voice is a little yeah. lower than a tenor, but it's yeah. a little bit higher than a baritone. Yeah, and well, he says he's a baritone with high notes because I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of times when he's going low that his voice almost becomes inaudible. Mm. Like Kelly Clarkson is that way too. Like Kelly Clarkson's range when she does mm. her low parts and like. Uh, she does the verses for like since you've been gone and whatnot. Like her voice almost disappears. Like it's it, she goes so low that it it just sounds like a little bit rumbly. 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what Josh Groban does a lot. Like he hits those low notes, but it's not rich. It's very like, it, it's real, like kind of a grumble. Huh. And then the other thing that I don't like, okay, this is, uh, th- please, de- please defend this, please, please, d- this accusation from me. But like, and I don't know if it's like, cause he's classically trained. If there's like a technique to this, his, his vowel sounds change at different points in his voice. Yeah. Depending whether he's like low, medium, low, medium, high or high in his range. Like the way that he says like a sounds will change from like ah to a like. And it, it, it distracts <laughs> I mean, I me so much that um, I'm like, I, I can't handle how he's choosing to pronounce certain words from moment to moment. I think I mean, I think part of that is just because I mean, I think. And I'm going to bring this back to a comment that you've made before where you've said you don't always know what makes a big voice a big voice. Mm -hmm. Like it didn't register to you that it's like different or something. I don't know. I don't know how you put it. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I I think, you know, that is a function in my in my opinion and listening to him is a function of just like as a singer, the physicality of singing. Right. Like depending on where you're. It's it's not so much. I mean, it is pronunciation, it is enunciation, but it's also just the projection and how you have to hold your mouth when you sing. How you have to like hold your mouth, your throat, like where your muscles go to like get some of those notes out. That it is like almost impossible to like do a full rounded note, like a or vowel sound, maybe if you're at the top because physically you're squeezing there's certain things that are squeezing, like you can't, you can't also squeeze and hold open. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I think that, I think that that plays into it, but it's like, that really happens when you are singing at that, like, not, not level, that volume, like, like, you know, when you're, you're projecting in that way. I think, I think it does. I, I I don't, I haven't really picked up on it. To me, it just sounds so exaggerated. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, that's, 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 that's probably fair. I also think that's part of the, like, I, I think that's part of that pop classical. You know, it's it, it like it's almost like it's the operatic part of it, right? Yeah, it's like there's almost like an affect to his voice that. Well, and I think that's the criticism of pop opera and pop classical that it's affected yeah. because it's clearly it's not classical, right? It's not they're not reciting like a libretto from like the 1700s, yeah. right? They're not sing it's they're they're singing a song that was written last year in a style that like you know, it's a tradition that's being carried on, but it's not, it has no actual, it's not like from an ancient time or from the past, I guess. And so I think, I think that's part of it. I think it's, I think it's part of just like whether or not you like this or not. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't, yeah, I think, I think, and I think there are times where it's too much for me and there's times when I enjoy it. Okay. And I think that, the song What I Did for Love on this album is a time where I enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> so let me tell you how I even came across this. I only came across this album and this song this year while working from home during the pandemic. Okay. I did not, like, I didn't know Josh Groban was still putting out music after You're Still You and all of that. You Lift Me Up, etc. I mean, I, I kind of knew, but I didn't care. Right. Like I don't like I really don't like pop classical. So like when you go back to his albums, like the t- the songs that we talked about. Yeah, those are the ones that come through. But like there's a lot of songs that are like they're in Italian or they're in like Spanish or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of 
world music and folk, like to your point, like, you know, there's an affect to them that I just don't like. Like, I don't, I'm not living in a world where I just regularly listen to like, not an actual opera, but someone singing like they're singing opera, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's just not my thing. But I have, over time, started to like more Broadway music. I, I didn't grow up with Broadway um that much i had to come to it sort of through roundabout ways and you know again what i did for love is one of the most famous songs from a chorus line um the other one being one singular sensation so chorus line was like one of the longest running broadway shows of all time won tony's i think it won a pulitzer for for a musical marty hamlish martin hamlish yeah so i mean it's it's i mean it's it's very widely renowned one is probably that's the song that you know that's the song that you know and but i didn't know it until my first trip to vegas in the year 2000 it was after i graduated high school i went with my best Wait, friend the song Jordan. the song one yeah i feel like it was used in like candy bar commercials and stuff i think it was but i didn't have con <laughs> i didn't have context for it yeah Right. Like, and that's the thing about that song. Like it's been used in so many different things. I know it's been used in the Simpsons. Like it's been, it's been parodied. It's been pulled apart. But again, so this is going to be really embarrassing. But when I first went to Vegas and I just, so, so the Bellagio was like a big thing. And if we want to talk about like faux classical, faux, like serious type of shit, the Bellagio is like a perfect example. It is a faux Italianate hotel, like resort with you know it's famous for its enormous man-made lake that's in front of it it's um is that the one at the fountain show the fountain show yes it became famous for the fountain show but they essentially like in the middle of vegas they built you know um all of the shops around it are made to look like villas around lake como in italy so it's like has this like you know faux sophistication like it's 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 very exotic in this way and every like during the day every 15 minutes they the fountain show there um is choreographed to a variety of songs they could be old they could be new and this this fountain show has become like world famous like it's 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 a big deal when i first went to vegas in the early 2000s i like basically set up shop outside of the bellagio because and i just watched all these different ones and i i was exposed to songs that i never would have that I had not heard before, which again, it sounds, it's like how we come to pop culture and like some of these things. It was very formative for me. The first show that I saw there when was at night, it was um, Frank Sinatra's version of Luck Be a Lady from Guys and Dolls. And that's another example of like pop version, like a, like a traditional pop version of a song that was in a Broadway musical, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a standard, Luck Be a Lady is a standard, but they came from musicals and I'd never heard it and I'd never understood until that moment why Frank Sinatra had been popular. I came to him very much like kind of what you're talking about with Josh Groban, where he just sounds very slow. I always just thought it was very slow. Frank Sinatra? Um, Well, that's the thing. I had never, I had never considered his voice. Like, seriously. I never thought he had, like, a great voice. That My dad... Because, I mean, I always heard Frank Sinatra... Like, my dad was a big, like... uh, He's kind of a hip guy in the 60s, Mm. 50s and 60s. And he had a bunch of Frank Sinatra records that I used to listen to as a kid. He's one of those, like, iconic singing voices that it, it doesn't necessarily seem... It seems very accessible, Frank Sinatra's singing voice. Yeah. Well, it's it's also incredible. His singing voice is incredible. Like and 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 when you go back and you listen to it and you 
you spend time with it like his his way with a phrase like the way he can imbue emotion into the in this in this um in what i used to associate with just like an old man mm-hmm. singing like it just sounded very old to me and now i listen to it and i'm like i just love it like it's he's so evocative and communicative and the way he could turn a phrase a recital line in that like to just really make you feel what he was feeling mm-hmm. um, or really tell a story through that song all of that kind of came out of like seeing a show at the Bellagio so <laughs> I also one of the other ones that I heard was um, a chorus uh, one from a chorus line and I'd never heard one and, I, and it was you know the, the the fountains kind of mimic the chorus line you know with the step the, the steps and the high kicks and all that and uh, I was just like, oh, this is this is cool. Like, have I been just sort of writing off? I, I used to think of all Broadway sort of in the same way that you're kind of reacting to just pop classical in general. Okay. Just like kind of weird, like, op- like fake opera hmm. at that point. Okay. Like it just, it, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really process it. So from around 2001 on, I started kind of digging more into it. And a turning point for me, honestly, was you and I watched Bette Midler in Gypsy. Gypsy, okay. Yeah. That's like golden age of Broadway musicals, though. Mm-hmm. Well, it's golden age of Broadway, but like I'd never been exposed to the original. Mm. I mean, Ethel Merman, Ethel Merman just screams the original and then. <laughs> and then Rosalind Russell sort of does a interesting, let's just say interesting version. Well, because Rosalind Russell couldn't sing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I love, yeah. I love Rosalind Russell, but that you know, it's I wouldn't have come away with, I would never have come away having watched that movie, that version of the movie, being like, oh, Gypsy is my favorite musical. Yeah, but I think some of the songs from Gypsy are like my favorite musical songs. That's like a the great one of the greatest musicals of yeah. all time. Um, yeah. Wait, so I mean, you were never one of those kids that got really into like Rent or anything like that. I hate Rent. Okay. I mean, oh, I okay. was like, just pay your rent, guys. Pay your rent. You, you're you're paying for a service, and this is why. Like, uh, this, I don't know. <laughs> Jeez, I can't talk right. about it too much. I know a lot of people really Tenants love rights, it. Tenants' rights, Jason. Uh, they have yes, for sure, but they're like squatters at this point, right? Um, oh no, because I mean, I guess that's that's another thing that, or it becomes a lot of people's first introduction to Broadway musicals is like, yeah. Every so often, there's like a new musical that takes hold of like. <laughs> the American psyche, the way that like Rent did, or the way that Wicked did. Wicked, yes. The way that Wicked. Hamilton did. It's like when it's like when your baseball team goes to the World Series, and suddenly everyone is a fan of the Dodgers, right? It's like, well, yeah. It's, it's like it's suddenly a, like, a, oh, like, have you heard this like Hamilton thing, or have you have you heard Rent? And like, it suddenly yeah. like attracts the masses back to Broadway. Yeah. And I think what's interesting for me is like when I, when I say that I like, like Broadway, like in even some of the newer stuff, like my inclination is to like more traditional sounding musicals than maybe some of the newer sounding ones. Like, like I didn't like Rent, I think because I didn't really like that rock. It's like a rock opera. It's kind of like the reaction again, like you're having to pop classical or pop opera. I'm like, this doesn't go together. (laughs) Why are you singing like that with that? Like adding an electric guitar doesn't make it cool. But I, I think I was maybe just maybe a little too young. I'm not sure. Okay. Like, And then by the time I watched Rent in its entirety, because I didn't see it for a long time until I was out of high school. So I think by that point, like I think feel like I had like missed the boat. Like it wasn't at a formative enough time for me to latch on. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and, and so I'll tell you, Chicago <laughs> with... Um, uh, Renee 
Zellweger? and Catherine Zeta Jones. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I did not like Dream Girls, but no. I, I mean, I've always, I've liked that song, but, um, but like, you know, the, I mean, as far, like, I like kind of that traditional sort of, dun, 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 you know, sort like of Like that jazzy. one, two, skidoo, like yeah. Liza Minnelli. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And that's, and because I was also having like feeling of, you know, having all my feelings about Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl at the time and like Liza and Cabaret, like that started becoming sort of where my Broadway sensibilities were percolating, which is not to say I don't like new ones. Um, Eric took me to see Wicked. I did enjoy Wicked. I didn't think I would, but I did because um, I had read the book thinking it would be a satire. Mm-hmm. This is like well before it was, it was a show. And I really loved the book. And when I found out they made it into a musical, I just couldn't conceive of how they would have done that. And so I kind of just ignored it for a long time. And then we went to see it and it was great. I still um, haven't seen it. I like, so. I, you know, I like it. I think it's it's not for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, again, to the to the sort of modern sort of Broadway, some people like it, some people don't, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of pop Broadway. I, I like the Book of Mormon, you know? So, I mean, I, I, but I, but I also saw Hello, Dolly last year. And I mean, Hello, Dolly is terrible kind of a weird it's a terrible it is a terrible <sighs> musical but i love put on your sunday clothes. it has great music the story hello, makes dolly. the story makes no sense it's the stupidest story i'm like ugh, these people dolly she creates her own problem and then tries to yeah. fix it almost immediately and puts it on everyone else yeah but anyway but, um, dolly Levi. it's fine anyway anyway so back to back so, you know that's, circle, that's sort of my back. thing let's go yeah, back to the uh, bellagio uh, go back to one and then go back to this song that we're talking about <laughs> well so I, you know, I had never really, I, uh, to this day, I haven't seen a chorus line, like, yeah, me neither through, right? Like, I'm not, not really interested in it. I think my high school actually put a production of a chorus line on before I went, before I went there. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, I'd heard, you know, as I mentioned before, like this song has been covered a lot, like Peggy Lee, um, there's a version from Aretha that she hmm. did in the 70s. Um, interestingly enough, on the Wikipedia page for this song, What I Did for Love, under notable versions, Aretha's is not on there. They they and the rest of the world agree that it wasn't... Not notable. Not notable. But like Edie Gourmet, like th- there's these like these sort of lounge acts. Like it became like very lounge acty, mm-hmm. you know, to do this song. I never liked it. Like I... I remember like hearing some of it and just being like, this is a weird, the song is weirdly constructed. And I think to your point about like needing the context. So the song, what I did for love, it's, it's, it's in the penultimate. So in the, in the show, it's in the penultimate scene of the production. One of the dancers has suffered like a career ending injury. So the remaining dancers gather together on stage. They're asked, what would they do if they were told they could no longer dance? And one of the, um, characters diana in reply she sings this anthem anthem which considers loss philosophically with an undefeated optimism all of the dancers concur whatever happens they will be free of regret what they did in their careers they did for love and their talent no matter how great their talent was only theirs to borrow it was to be only temporary and would someday be gone but the love of performing is never gone they are always pointed toward tomorrow and so Absent that, mm-hmm. when you hear this song by itself, you're like, what the fuck are these people talking about? Like, what I did for love. Like, what? Like, who? Because it's it's unclear. Like, yeah. It's not what clear do that, you love? It's not clear that it's they're not talking about, a person. about, yeah. That you might think they're talking about a person, but in the context of the show, they're really talking about everything that they've they've done exactly. for the love of 
performing because for the cor- love of performance. Because a chorus line is about a a group of chorus dancers that are auditioning for mm-hmm. a part in this production, right? Well, and they're kind of well, and and the the story is like it's more about like they're aging, right? Like they're 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 still kind of looking for their last sort of shot. Mm-hmm. at some of this right? well they all have like their individual stories that they're like yeah that unfold throughout the production mm-hmm. and then like yeah i think like one of the one of the uh, dancers you know she had had like a failed shot at stardom and you know yeah all these things yeah but anyway yeah and so it's you know it's when you hear the song you're like it 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 doesn't vibe with or doesn't it doesn't jibe with like being sung about a person but also i think the idea like what i did for love I think at the time, just the, just the premise, (laughs) like, here's what I did, you know, and obviously it's like not great or it wasn't enough or something like that. Um, That was my takeaway. I I just wasn't in that mind space at the time. (laughs) I was like, oh, how pathetic. Um, (laughs) I didn't like it. But, you know, earlier this year I was listening to, like I said, I've, I've become, I'm a fan of singers who sing Broadway. So like, you know, Bernadette Peters when she does all these different anthology albums of like different Broadway songs that, you know, maybe she's, she's never, she's never been in the show, but she loves these songs. Like it's, it's opened me up, opened my eyes over the years to so many different musicals and different songs that I was listening to like a Pandora station um, while I was working. And I heard, I heard the Kelly Clarkson, Josh Groban, all I ask of you duet. And I was like, I didn't like it necessarily but i didn't realize that she had done that song and i didn't realize he was doing that so i looked up the album and i realized he'd done a full album of broadway covers and that's how i came to the album and i listened to it and honestly like i i have my favorites like i'll go i'll skip through blah 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 but um i don't like all of the songs but i find it a very enjoyable experience i feel like to some of the points that we're making and some of the discussion some of the disagreement i feel and i know you disagree with me <laughs> i feel like if we're talking about pop classical, I feel like this is a good use of his voice in a format where it makes sense to be singing in this style than just wholly new songs in this style. Like outside of a musical, I feel like it makes sense to sing some of these songs this way as opposed to singing pop songs this way all the time for no reason, just because that's the style you like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. For me, it's enough context because I like listening to singers sing Broadway, if that makes sense. Like, I don't always need the, um, I don't always need the, the context of the out, the cast album or whatever, because that's kind of how I came to my Broadway appreciation. Hmm. You know, although, you know, now, like, one of my favorite, um, albums, uh, in the last couple of years is the original cast recording for Company, Stephen Sondheim's Company, um, which famously has Ladies Who Lunch, but also has, um, being alive, which was performed by um, God, what's his name? Dean, uh, Dean Jones, and I. You know, there's this famous documentary um, of the making of the cast album, and most of it focuses on sort of the the hard, the the brutal sort of process to record Elaine Stritch doing Ladies Who Lunch and getting that performance, and how exacting Sondheim was, mm-hmm. and how hard it was for Elaine to do it, but how she came out on top. What I also came away with was that Dean Jones singing the song "Being Alive." is great but i didn't realize i didn't put two and two together that dean jones is the dad from like the disney movies of the 60s so he was in flubber the original flubber he was like in the original herbie movies with the vw like i didn't realize he had that range 
And like he's he kills that song. It's amazing. It's about a man who's who's single and, you know, kind of struggling with the idea of getting married. Right. And it's and I've listened to that album and like, uh, you know, you talking about like needing the context of why people are singing these songs. I'd always only ever heard the big showstoppers from that album sort of outside of the context of the musical. Mm-hmm. And so I am kind of going back now and listening to that. But I, but what I did for Love, Josh Groban's version, was the first time that I actually liked this song. You didn't like the uh, Grace Jones version? I was like looking at all the covers and I was like, <laughs> oh, this appeared on Grace Jones' debut album. And there's like yeah, a, her debut it's album. It's like a disco. Well, but you know what's really crazy? It's like, look at the Undernotable versions. Like, it was covered all of these times, but within the same two-year period like and then after that almost never yeah so 75 76 77 because did it get like a tony award and then everyone was Mm -hmm. like okay it's time everyone's like i gotta do it strike while the iron's hot kind of thing yeah yeah Yeah. um and and i think that's you know it's interesting because i feel like now we're in a moment where like you you talked about hamilton where hamilton sort of became this success this runaway success and people knew it but like the the major like people really loved the cast recording like they had like a mixed Hamilton mixtape that did have other artists performing some of the songs but that's not as popular I feel like this was at a time when lots of pop singers and singers across all genres would cover musical songs mm-hmm. like for their own like not as part of not attached to like a an extension of the musical project itself right like I. I, th- I find that unusual. I don't think that's being done now. Yeah. Because you think about, what was that song with, uh, what was that What was that show with um, Ben uh, Ben Platt? Oh, um, um, I broke my arm and yeah. pretended you're my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 Why can't I think of it? And then Katy Perry um, sang that song. Uh, ben, well, ben Platt in, uh, God, what the fuck was that? Because even, because what's his Evan name now? Dear, Dear Evan, Evan Hansen. I broke my you arm and now you're my friend. <laughs> you don't as popular as that is like the dear evan hansen album is probably popular more popular like i don't hear like say i don't know kelly clarkson's not going out adding those songs to her album yeah you know like you know but did i imagine that that katie perry recorded that song i i don't know i think that, I, I think that she did a version of uh whatever his main Waving through a window. Isn't that the song that she does? Oh, is, is it, is it from, I didn't, well, I think that's, but I can't remember what she recorded it for. But again, to your point, like not a lot of, there's not a lot of opportunities. I feel like to do that, to make Broadway musical songs cross over into pop in any kind of believable way. Yeah. Just because of the nature of where pop music is at currently. And I think that that's an interesting thing to think about for Josh Groban is that when he was emerging in the early 2000s, there was like a concerted effort to make pop classical happen, right? Like obviously David Foster has always been a champion of these types of acts and Simon Cowell got his hand in the game. So there was obviously an interest in being like, this is, this is what we're going to make happen in music at this particular point in time. Mm-hmm. But as with all things pop music, you know, the powers that be just kind of walk away from that after a certain point, you know? Well, and it's, it's, and it's interesting too, because if you think about the, you know, we're, we're talking about this purely in the context of like Broadway musicals, but you know, you want to look for pure 
pop crossover of like musicals. Look at look at Disney and Pixar, right? You have like the songs from Frozen, Let It Go. Look at the songs from like Coco or even Moana. Yeah, um, but that's kind right? of like also been an evergreen formula. It is for Disney. It is. I mean, it, it harkens back but to Peebo yeah. Bryson. Yes, right. They would always have yeah. their movie and version of the song, and yeah. then they would release, you know, the mm-hmm. the pop version. Yeah. Which is, well, I, I, for, I was really happy when they started doing that again with mm-hmm. like, um, like Demi Lovato did the pop version of yeah, Let, it go, Let It Go and um, What's Her Face did, did the pop version from Moana. Alessia Ale- Cara. Cara. Yeah. Which I, which I, I like. And I think, I think what's interesting is like those are more accepted, like kind of off the bat. Like I, I, people are used to that. Like people, people I think have a, have a, have a deeper skepticism over whether they will like a Broadway one. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, like a, a movie musical is, I mean, it's a musical still, right? Like it's songs inserted to like advance the narrative and you know, they're, they may be pop. They may be, they may not be like pure pop, but like the, when they come out, like, you know, that Disney's going to release that. And you know, like Miguel released the version of the song from Coco. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it, it works in that sense. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, did you like did you like Zane uh, Zane's version of a whole new world, the very sad one, sad and dark one from the? the is it the live line? action? I don't yeah. think I. It looks like he's like the video looks like he's oh. going to like just follow a girl home and kill her. Oh, because no, he's like I, standing in a darkened park. Like I'm, I, I cannot like say that I'm actually familiar with that. So it's not a great version. Okay, it's not a great version. It's very, it's like moody in a way that it doesn't need to be. For Josh Groban to make this career for himself of being, you know, self-aware, kind of funny, adorable, classical pop singer. You know, I'm I'm thinking now about like, like Matthew Morrison from Glee. Like he attempted Mm -hmm. like kind of a a move move into pop crossover. Ben Platt from Dear Evan Hansen. Mm -hmm. Like he's in the process of, you know. Have you listened to his albums, Ben Platt? No, his new one. I don't. I know that's not really your thing. I I wouldn't normally, but again, I through different like radio whatever, like it it came up, and I, I actually like I like it. I have a discomfort. It's very I think I have a discomfort about Ben Platt. I don't know why. Is that weird? Your homophobia. No, I've been trying to get into <laughs> get like I I was trying to start watching um the politician on Netflix, oh. and I don't oh, know yeah. why. Like I I just I couldn't start it, and then. I feel like I don't really know much about him because I, I mean, when I saw Dear Evan Hansen, it was here in LA and it was like the touring cast. So he wasn't part of that. Mm-hmm. And then I think I've only ever really seen him in um, that. Ep- he played in, he was in an episode of Will and Grace when real, Will oh, and Grace where he got, played, he, he was like, he played Will's like the young in, guy, Will's love interest. Yeah. That was like way too young. That called him like a daddy and like yeah. it sent Will into a spiral. Yeah. I, I didn't, I remember, so I hadn't really been following Dear Evan Hansen, didn't know who Ben Platt was. So that was my first experience with Ben Platt. And I was like, oh, that's Ben Platt. Cause like, I didn't, I didn't put the two together, you know, but. And I think I, you know, I got, I always got Ben Platt confused with Skylar Aston. Yeah, I can see that. From uh, Pit, Pitch Perfect. Yeah. Who's straight. Yes. Yeah. 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 But like, yeah. just like yeah. the, the, if I if you squint your eyes and look at them yeah. through like blurry contact lenses, like they might look like the same person a little bit. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, I, you know, and it's, it is, it is interesting. Cause it's like, well, the politician's interesting. Cause I, I, we watched like the first three or four episodes and then I went off the rails and I was like, I can't with this show. Okay. But I thought it was, I mean, I loved, I was living for Gwyneth Paltrow's like outfits in that show. She's like cutting, like trimming the roses in a full length, like opera coat with gloves. <laughs> And that giant hat. And it was just, 
so wrong in like the best way. It was like so campy, but like also very Ryan Murphy. So just like it couldn't hold itself together. And I think the thing with Ben Platt in that show is, I mean, he's supposed to be very like off. There's something like off about him, but I don't know that that's part and parcel of like him. I know that's the character, but I, I can, I can kind of see that. I guess, like there's I guess an in general. I don't know what it is. And his voice, again, I think it's that thing about like, yeah, when, it's you, a, it's a, when you have yeah. a background in musical theater, you sing a very particular way. Mm-hmm. And He's got a very tight vibrato. And to like translate that into something, I don't know, mainstream poppy. or poppy. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. No, and I, I feel like they, they, there is a sense of like, there, there is a sense of like, if you're like a classically trained singer or, a, you know, a Broadway trained singer, a vocalist, that you should be versatile enough to do anything with your voice, right? I think you yeah. look at that, I mean, and it, it, it may or may not be true, right? I think mm-hmm. you see that in... I always think about like, so you think you can dance where you get classically trained dancers. Right. But then they ask them to like, okay, now do this like hip hop, like do hip hop or something less structured than what you're used to. And you start to realize like, oh, it's like a difficult transition to work quote unquote backwards, basically. Yeah. I mean, and it works very differently for different people. I mean, again, it depends on like what you're trying to do. I think an interesting person to look at is Cynthia Erivo who is the she she came really to prominence doing the color purple playing Celie in the color purple and her version of i'm here it's beautiful but like her she's got a very soulful quality to her voice right mm-hmm. and and in some ways that translates very good to a sort of r&b inflected pop career you know what i mean like not entirely, but like she's got an amazing voice. Her voice, Cynthia Riva's voice is beautiful. And she's been in a lot of different things um, lately. She's she's acting. I think she's playing Aretha Franklin in an upcoming movie. Cynthia Riva? Jennifer Hudson. Yeah. yeah. In a yeah. different movie you know, from the Jennifer Hudson movie? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Competing Aretha Franklin biopics? Well, because the Jennifer, was the Jennifer Hudson one just, the, not just, but isn't that the National Geographic one? Because you know how National Geographic has had this series? Because um, cause what's his name? Um. Antonio Banderas played Picasso in one of them. Like they do like one a year. Oh. And they're pretty they're supposedly pretty good. Wait, are they theatrical? He, I think he, No, they ju- they show up on the sh- on the on the on the on the channel, I think. Oh. Wait. It's part of their way to get people to watch it, I thought. The Jennifer, I guess Hudson, Jennifer Hudson one is, is um No, the Jennifer Hudson one is like a big theatrical production. Yeah, no, you're right. Um I'm trying to maybe I got it wrong cuz she's She's oh yeah no I got it backwards. Cynthia Revo is playing her is playing Aretha in the National Geographic version. So the okay. series is called Genius, and mm. it's Genius Aretha. And so every every different one is a different person, right? So like they had Picasso. I think there was an Einstein one at some point, but you know she's she's won a Tony, an Emmy, and a Grammy. Um, she's also been nominated for two Academy Awards. Like she's, you know. I feel like sometimes, not in t- not always, but there's you know if 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 the Broadway stuff that you've been singing is sort of soulful, like obviously the color purple has like a soulfulness to it. You look at Dream Girls, Heather Headley, um, not Dream Girl, not Heather Headley, um, Jennifer Holiday back in the day with, and I'm telling you that like set her up for a solid sort of pop R and B career mm-hmm. at the time, like through the 80s and 90s, and gave her that iconic status. Whereas like. It's harder if you have a pop Broadway musical for that to translate. I think because pop is so, it's so timely 
Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, it has to be of the moment. And like a lot of R&B or soulful stuff can sort of feel timeless in that way. Or maybe transition over time periods, maybe not timeless, but mm-hmm. okay, you know, but, but again, that's, that's not entirely a hundred percent either. Cause you look at someone like Heather Headley from the early two thousands. She was, she was in um, the musical Aida. What did she do she, for me? She did. Um, I wish, I wish I wasn't in love with you. Was her song? Oh, okay. Do I know that it, song? I mean, it's funny. Like these. It are was all, like very neo soul. These like, are all she, names she that I know. Neo-soul. These are all names that have like crossed my consciousness at one point or another. But I'm like, I have no idea why I actually know who this person is. Well, I think Elton John and um, what's his name did the music for Aida. Mm. Like they had done for Lion King. That, and uh, so yeah. lots of people had done this show. So like Heather Headley was in it. Tony Braxton, I think, was in it at one point. Um, Deborah Cox. Um, Did Michelle Williams? Michelle Williams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Michelle Williams. But Deborah Cox released, I think it's Easy as Life is the is is the song, is a is a big song from that. But Deborah Cox turned that they had a remix of that. And it was a really good like dance club remix of Easy as Life. And um, I, I feel like there, there's sometimes maybe more evidence of a, of a not easy, but, you know, the, some of the crossover there um, can happen more readily, maybe. But um, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, anyway. so, you know, <laughs> back to my, back you know, to so anyway, life, I, I like, I like, I like what I did for love. Okay. I, I like the song. I like, I like some of the songs for this album. I like, I like the, the song Finishing the Hat from um, Sunday in the Park with George. Which I believe was originally, it's a Sondheim musical. It was originally Mandy Patinkin did, um, played, played and sang this part. It's just a beautiful song. And again, like I just hadn't really heard in, in true fashion, in true my fashion, I hadn't heard these songs in the musical mm-hmm. and coming to them sort of separately. But there's a beautiful sort of urgency and the lyrics. I, I really do like Sondheim. I, I like, I like the lyrics. So, I know some people have feelings about that. But. It's, yeah, Sondheim's not. I know. Doesn't Sondheim know. do a lot of the stuff where it's like talk singing, like you're just describing what you're Sometimes. doing? Yeah, okay. Sometimes, yeah. But I, but I feel like I feel like this song is less that. Okay. All right. Um, finishing the hat. Um, but yeah, no. And then you know, so so this came out. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know. You know, when we talk about like whether it was a flop or not, I I just feel like like not a lot of people really know it but you know i think it did serve a purpose i mean after this album came out you know the so so one of the raving reviews for this album came from broadway world a blog or an outlet that covers follows broadway um it was like fawning over it and they were like oh we can't wait to see him on broadway well the following year after this album comes out um he performed on broadway as pierre bezkoff in natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 which was an electropop opera by composer dave malloy based on war and peace um and for his performance as pierre groban was nominated in 2017 for a tony award for best actor in a musical so you know i guess maybe in some ways this helped prope- helped it was it was designed to kind of let people know he could do this. Mm-hmm. He was open to doing this <laughs> and maybe pivot. Right. Um, I mean, he, he had been then, talking about it since like the very beginning of his career. He wanted to. Yeah. He wanted, wanted to, to be an actor and that he, he potentially wanted to do Broadway. Yeah. So I think it finally, it gave him his opportunity. He was solid enough and has enough, had enough resources to put together, you know, a fairly, fairly well-produced Broadway album. Like, cause some people wouldn't have access to the resources to have that kinds of arrangements and, mm-hmm 
and access to, to collaborators. I mean, he collaborates with, um, he duets with Audra McDonald on one of the songs. Not my favorite song, but I mean, like, if you're talking about access and, you know, having a certain cachet as an artist, uh, you know, you wouldn't have any pull. I mean, it'd be rare that you'd have the kind of pull to pull together the collaborators that he did. I yeah. Think. So really kind of set him up. Um, he performs the song Evermore, which was during the end credits of um, the live action version of Beauty and the Beast um, in 2017. And Evermore has like 34 million streams on Spotify. It uh, Again, I don't, I don't really get it. Like it's not my favorite song. And I never saw that. I had no interest in seeing the live action version of Beauty and the Beast. I, I liked that. I mean, the live action Disney movies are interesting because they never are able, in my view, to make them as spectacular as yeah. you would imagine that they would like in translating something like Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin from those animated features and like the expansiveness of those worlds. I don't feel like they ever managed to capture the size and scope of those worlds in the live action for yeah. some reason. Like the the well, world of Beauty and the Beast, the live action movie, my biggest complaint is that it felt very, very small. Like it, it didn't I think seem the, like all the, yeah. I don't know. There's something small about it that didn't feel well, right. I think, I think that's the limitation of live action because I think when you have like a, a hand-drawn animation film, which I know Beauty and the Beast, the original uh, animated film, like made the first extensive use of computer animation in an animated film. But aside from that, um, there's a sort of suspension of disbelief that you have in watching a traditional line drawn animated film because you know it's not quote unquote real. Mm-hmm. So you can you can you can have these allusions to an expansive, fantastical, wider world without having to actually like represent it. Because the minute you do live action, it's like, well, now you have to render that into some sort of believable format, which I don't know. I think I think because then you're because then you're stuck in between trying to like figure out like what's real and what's not. Whereas yeah. like if you just watch, you know, like there's there's like a lack of you just can't be as fantastical. But I, I mean, I, I guess where I was surprised is that like there was such an attempt to make like Beauty and the Beast. I felt like there was such an attempt to make it feel very real, even though it seemed like a lot of it had to have been computer generated. Same with Aladdin. Like a lot yeah. of it had to be computer generated, at which point I'm like, well, why isn't this done in the way that like a sci-fi or fantasy film would be created? Well, like, I was. I was watching, I was, or I was listening to something about Aladdin, for example, and they were talking about how, um, you know, that song Prince Ali when he comes in mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's in the, in the animated film, like it's this whole big number and it's a big parade and it's, it's great. It just didn't feel as magical in the live action version. And one of the people I was listening to, like kind of really broke it down that when you're watching the animated version, it's actually a very fast song. And so they can animate all of those people, the all of the cast and everyone, like doing all of these things in a very fast way that like humans, animals, whatever, like cannot do and perform mm-hmm. at that speed. And so they had to slow it down for the live action, which then just made it feel like it lacked a lot of energy. And so I think that, again, with the sort of you can do things in an animated, in a purely animated film that you can't in in even live action which which has a lot of cgi it's just you're all you're in a space where you where you're you're it's telling you that it's real because it's rendered to be real mm. right and so your mind can't you can't suspend your disbelief in the same way that you could 
with like an animated. I version. guess so. It's, I just it's think they could they could have gotten some like Lucasfilm people in there to just make it spectacular. <laughs> just get put some droids in there. Put like so put some Jar Jar Binks in there. Yeah, just, they could they could move as fast as they need them to move to keep up with that song. <laughs> um, okay, so we've gone we've gone way off. But um, well, no, no, we haven't. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, in terms of like how these things Josh are Rubin working, is still working. He is, yeah, he hosted the Tony Awards with Sarah Bareilles in 2018. It was, I thought it was really lovely. People really liked it. You know, they again, they, they're obviously both such fans, and and she'd written um, waitress like the songs for the Tony nominated musical waitress. They do a parody of Sia's Chandelier called Eight Times a Week. That's pretty good. Yeah, so that was good, and you know his his you know. Again, not, I'm not a huge Josh Groban fan, but I, I like him. Um, he's got a new album coming out next month, I found out. Uh, the first single is The Impossible Dream, which is originally from the land of La Ma- the Man of La Mancha, mm-hmm. um, which is like a musical version of Don Quixote. And that originally debuted in the 60s. Um, it already came out. It's not my favorite. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I they're hit think or miss. That, like, I mean, yeah. I like Luther Vandross's version of that song. Okay. Uh, you know, and and also if I like a Broadway version, I like Linda Etter. Um, now that takes it deep, like that's an actual. Okay. There you go. But um, other than that, that's it. I I just think you should give this if you like if you like Broadway, just like in a popular sense, and you know some of these songs, um, give it a listen. Your mileage may vary, as with all of these things, but um, I enjoyed it, and 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 I like to sing along with it in the car. I see. I think the rare occasions. I think that that's like a big sell for you for Josh Groban. Yeah, that's true. Because that because we uh, like uh, it's like he's got a. I can sing along in the car. He's got a very high sing along factor for you in particular. Because yeah, yeah. I I just I (laughs) I will say this song is getting stuck in my head having listened to it over and over again. But there's just something Josh Groban. I feel like there truly is. There was a point in time for this music to be popular, and that. That uh-huh. moment has passed. It has. It has. And that's why I'm really, that's why I'm saying like he had an album that came out in 2018. He went on tour with Adina Menzel. Like, I'm like, who cares? Like who listened to that? Like why? Like it just wouldn't even have occurred to me. And like even <laughs> listening to this, it just, it's like out of place and time. Like it just doesn't make sense really. Like to your point, I, you know, again, doing the research on this and just, remembering oh yeah there was like il divo and like Mm -hmm. you know the andrea bocelli of it all everyone was trying to hop on that train like celine because il divo i remember would like release covers like their pop classical versions of like they did a pop classical version of like unbreak my heart by tony braxton and so then tony braxton did a song with them and it was like everyone was trying to like get on this train and i just don't think it was meant to sustain itself no, it was it was it was the fad of the moment. It was the cronut of the early 2000s and just as like fluffy and sickening if you had too much of it. Yeah, it's very trendy and then at a certain point you just want you just want a regular old croissant again. Like you if you yeah. if you want this type of music, you want to go to like the OG source of Yeah, like I'll I'll put on like my Pavarotti album or something. You don't want to try and have this type of music be contextualized for a pop audience anymore. You're just like, well no, if I want to listen to this type of singing, I want to listen to them sing it like as it was intended to be heard, which is which is why I like this Broadway album. Okay, because I feel like this is more in alignment with like what some of these songs were initially intended to be sung as. All right, I just made a face, but <laughs> I know you did, and I'm you know. All right, I feel well, judged, I, but it's okay. I, I well, I don't know if this was a flop. I don't know if this has been redeemed for me. But thank you very much for your contributions today, <laughs> <laughs> Josh Groban. 
J- J- uh, Jacob Jacob Grub Grubman Grubman. This is this this episode is called "What Barry Did for the Love of This Podcast." What I did because I had to listen to this. Do you song. have regrets? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> pointed towards tomorrow, Barry. Yeah, yeah. It's unbearable. I'm sorry. Not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, then take us out. All right. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. Email us, email us, email us anytime at um, flopredeemer at gmail.com. We're waiting. Not really. Okay, bye.